Grace and peace be with you. The Road by Cormac McCarthy is one of my favorite novels, one of my favorite movies. It tells the story of a father and a boy who are struggling to survive in a post-apocalyptic world. Discouragement, disappointment, and disillusionment lurk just beneath the surface. The world is extremely dangerous and dark. It's covered in ash, it's cold, it's smoky. After several close calls with groups of bad guys, these two people, the father and the boy, stumble across a secret underground bunker. A sanctuary in the midst of the smoke and the ash. And it's here in this place that they find rest and refreshment. It comes to them in the form him. of biscuits with they butter from and their peaches. Sight. They said to each other, Hot Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, Friday while he opened to us the and scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. Haircuts, and they found the eleven and those who were with him clothes, gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has arrested. appeared to Simon. Then they told what the had happened on the road. The boy is moved to give thanks to, to the people the that prepared the all these gifts, but he this doesn't know how to do Lord. it. Thanks be to the God. Father encourages him to give thanks, and the boy finally musters up the words to offer this Eucharistic prayer, thanking the people for all the gifts they left behind and all the gifts they were not able to partake of before they perished in whatever apocalyptic, apocalyptic event had occurred. The boy offers this Eucharistic prayer for the people who are now safe in heaven, and he's thankful for the gifts that are in front of him on the table. The story that we just heard from the Gospel of Luke has many similar themes in it that you find in this story, uh, The Road by Cormac McCarthy. The story that we just heard also takes place in a post-apocalyptic world, only the apocalyptic events that took place were known as the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. The travelers on the road from Jerusalem to Emmaus are living in a world that is now very different, a world that has been altered by the coming of Jesus, by the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. And they're making their way on the road when they are intercepted by none other than Jesus himself. And he begins to walk on the road with them. Throughout the Gospel of Luke, we have seen that Jesus is either going to a meal Reclining at a meal or coming from a meal. The Gospel of Luke has so many stories of Jesus eating and drinking that his enemies and critics called him a glutton and a drunkard. He was not actually a glutton and a drunkard, but by comparison, he certainly seemed to be one. He was with the kind of people that were gluttons and drunkards. He ate with the social outcasts. He ate with prostitutes. He ate with tax collectors. He ate with people that didn't share his politics. He ate with people that were very different from him. He ate with family and friends and just about anyone else who would invite him to a table. And he was happy to do so. His purpose for doing this was not self-indulgence. His purpose was missional. Throughout the Gospel of Luke, Jesus encounters people and he eats with them in a variety of places. And all of these small tables that they enjoy are 
missional tables from Jesus's point of view. His goal and purpose is to use all of those tables to move people along, to pave a way, to bring them closer and closer to his table, the Lord's table. And so if he has to eat and drink a little bit with the rough and the rowdy, he'll do it if it means bringing them closer to their Savior. So his purposes were missional. His purposes were also liturgical. We see this when he instituted the Last Supper, instituted Holy Communion. And it was there that he tells us the meaning and purpose of all the tables that came before. It was at that table that he sets the stage for the feast that is to come. It was at that table that he brought all the other tables together and said, this table is the one that gives meaning to the others because it's at this table that my people get to have face-to-face communion with me. And so Jesus' purposes for eating and drinking with so many different kinds of people were both missional and liturgical. And in the story before us today, we see both of those things come slamming together in Emmaus, where the missional and the liturgical aspect of Jesus' ministry are on full display. So we find Jesus on the road in the aftermath of the crucifixion and resurrection. Again, he is now walking with others in a post-apocalyptic world, a world that has been altered by his death and by his life. And what unfolds in this story is not unlike what we are experiencing today. There is a liturgical rhythm to this story that I want you to see. Just as we have been called together today and confessed our sins and we're hearing God's word read and preached to us and we'll commune with Christ at the table and then be sent out on mission, we see all of these elements in this story as well. For as these travelers were walking down the road, Jesus came and initiated a conversation with them. He actually interrupted them and invaded their space and began to lead them towards himself through his word. And it was in this conversation, this dialogue, that the men confessed their disappointment and their disorientation to Jesus. Disappointment because they expected Jesus to use his power and his influence to overthrow the empire and rescue Israel and reestablish Israel as the people of God on the earth. But their expectations were unmet. They discovered that Jesus did not share their political vision and dreams and that Jesus will not allow himself to be domesticated by any political party. So their expectations are unmet and they're disappointed. They're also disoriented because now they don't know what to do or where to go. The men that Jesus had been training for leadership had scattered and they're hiding and they're locked away in places. And now these two travelers are conflicted and confused. And you might be wondering why they don't understand who Jesus is. They see him as a stranger, as a fellow traveler, but they don't recognize him. Imagine that. He's only a foot or two away from them at most. And yet he is up close and personal. And no matter how close and personal he is in this moment, they are unable to see him. They're unable to perceive who he is. They are like men who have been sent to the kitchen by their wives to find something. And no matter how hard the men look, they can't see it. 
And the wife comes in and says, it's right here in front of your face, eye level on the shelf. These men are blind to the reality in front of them. So here Jesus is standing nearby, the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, blazing right in front of them, in plain sight. And yet he is hidden from them by some power that is keeping their eyes from perceiving him. Imagine, if you will, the Holy Spirit has his hand over the eyes of these men. So they see a stranger and a traveler, but they don't see their Savior. They're spiritually blind. A veil is covering their hearts, is preventing them from seeing the real presence of Christ in their life. And then as we quickly discover in the story, they don't even see the real presence of Christ in the scriptures. So Jesus does something that every pastor dreams about doing. Every pastor in his heart of hearts wishes he could do what Jesus does here. He's engaged with a converse, in a conversation with some people who say all kinds of crazy things. And Jesus says what the rest of us are thinking. Oh, you foolish people. <laughs> Slow of heart, dull of mind. What is your problem? Only he probably didn't say it in that way. I think he was needling these guys a little bit when he diagnoses their spiritual problem and says, guys, don't be so silly. Don't be so slow of heart. You know better than this. And he begins to unpack for them the scriptures and show them the grace and truth of the gospel from the word of God. Luke tells us that he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, again, they don't know that's Jesus. They just know they're getting this fantastic Bible lesson, this fantastic Bible study as they walk along the road. This would be the ultimate podcast as you walk seven miles down the road and you're listening like, what is the Bible all about? And Jesus says, it's all about me. And let me show you how the law is all about me and the prophets are all about me and the Psalms are all, all about me. They're not about you. They're all about Jesus. And what Jesus is doing here is pulling back the veil and letting the light shine from the scriptures into their lives. He's showing them what it all means. He's helping them connect the dots and put the pieces of the puzzle together. And he's able to do this in a way that they never imagined or dreamed possible. Not long ago, an influential pastor of an evangelical megachurch made the statement that he believes it's time for the church to unhitch itself from the Old Testament. Very controversial statement. Got a lot of internet play and a lot of ink was spilled debating that issue. But I mention that to say that that evangelical pastor is not the only one who has problems with the Old Testament. Throughout the history of the church, people from as early as the second century on have been saying, hey, we got problems with the Old Testament. I know that some of you read the Old Testament and you struggle with some of the stories that you find there and you wonder, how can what we see in the Old Testament relate to what we see in the New Testament it doesn't seem like very much like Jesus, and so we have a hard time with it. A lot of people have trouble with the Old Testament for various reasons. But I want to point out to you that Jesus did not have a problem with the Old Testament. The apostles did not have a problem with it, nor did the church fathers, nor do your pastors. Look over the last couple of years at how many series we have preached from the Old Testament. And in every one of them, who are we preaching? We're preaching Christ. <laughs> Amen. 
Come help me. (laughs) For the first few centuries of the church, the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, was the primary text for the early church. And they were preaching Christ from the Old Testament, just as the Lord Jesus taught them to do. So imagine, if you will, what that conversation on the road from Jerusalem to Emmaus must have been like. You know that it was absolutely the most Christ-centered message ever delivered in the history of the world, and all of it came from the law and the prophets and the Psalms. As Jesus said, let me show you what the Spirit of God has been saying in the Word of God about Christ, the Son of God. And so truly, his word was a lamp to their feet and a light to their path. And this was very important because Luke tells us that as they walked and talked and made their way on the road, night was overcoming the day. The darkness deepened and threatened to eclipse the light and extinguish the lamp in more ways than ones, not just physically, but also spiritually in the life of these travelers. But something really interesting happens here. And it almost looks like it's flyover scripture. You just move on to the next one. But I want to camp out here and show you something that is crucial for your life and mine. The travelers did in this story what you and I ought to do at the end of every Lord's Day. At the end of every sermon that we hear. If it's about Christ and the gospel. Notice what they did. They invited Jesus to stay with them. They invited Jesus to stay with them. They invite the light to come out of the darkness and to come and dwell in their home and to sit at their table and to fellowship with them, to spend more time, not less time together. Far too often after the sermon ends, I know what we do. We do a data dump as quickly as we can and we move on to the next thing. We go out to eat, we rush home, we turn on the game. We send Christ on down the road, and by the time evening falls, we have forgotten his word. The light has been eclipsed. The lamp has been extinguished. And we wake up on Monday wondering why in the world we are wandering in darkness and wallowing in despair. Are we really that slow of mind? Are we really that silly that we can't see what's happening to us? These travelers invited Jesus to stay with them, to sit at their table, and he welcomed the invitation. Now imagine, if you will, how differently the story would have played out if when they saw Jesus acting like he was going to keep going down the road and they were going to go their way back home, if they had just said, hey, good lesson, enjoy the sermon, see you later. If that were the end of the story, you know what would have happened. The story would have ended in darkness. But instead, it ends in light. And it ends in light because they bring Jesus to his house, or to their house, and Jesus sat down at the table. And he took charge of the situation. You've got to love this about Jesus. Imagine you invite someone to your home. And you prepare the meal and you get everything ready. And then he goes, I'll take it from here. I'll be the host. And that's what he does. He's at the head of the table and he takes the bread. And he's the one who is going to run point on this meal. 
And what he actually does here is he reenacts the communion liturgy that he had established, instituted, just a few nights before. If you go back to the Last Supper in the Gospel of Luke 22, you see the same language. That on the night he was betrayed, this is what he did. He took bread. He gave thanks. He broke the bread. He gave it to his disciples. On the third day at Emmaus, when Jesus was sitting down at the table with these travelers in their home, he took bread, he blessed it, he broke it, he gave it to them. What does the Holy Spirit want us to see? Not that these are two separate and distinct stories, but two stories that are brought together in Christ. That Jesus, who has been using tables throughout his ministry for missional and liturgical purposes, now brings them all together here to say mission and worship belong together. Because when mission and worship come together, the people of God get to have face-to-face communion with Jesus. And so Jesus brings this Eucharistic mystery of gift-giving to the family at Emmaus. And what happens in this moment is remarkable. In this moment, the Spirit pulls the blinders from the eyes of these travelers. And it's in that moment, in the breaking of the bread, that they know Jesus beyond a shadow of a doubt. They did not know Jesus on the road, in the conversation, not even in the discussion about the scriptures and the gospel. All of those are contributing factors. But they knew Jesus in this moment at the table in the breaking of the bread. And that is the moment that the light got in. The Spirit works through the word and the sacraments to reveal the Lord Jesus Christ to his people. What I want you to remember is that when the invisible word of God from the pulpit is coupled with the visible word of God at the table, the light and life of Christ fires our heart and mind and fills our body and soul with grace and truth. So word and sacrament belong together. These are the ordinary means of grace that God promises to use to illumine our hearts, to reveal Christ to us, to strengthen our faith, To draw us in closer to himself. Now if you've been around the Christian community for any time at all. You've probably heard that there are all kinds of debates in the Christian community. Over what happens to the bread during communion. Different traditions have different perspectives on this. Questions are raised. Does Jesus enter into the bread? Does he hover around the bread? Is he just sort of nearby? Does the bread change from bread into something else? Or is the bread simply there to sort of trigger memories so that we can think about Jesus in our heads? Well, I want to suggest to you that there is a change that takes place in the breaking of the bread. But the change that takes place is not in the bread itself. The change that takes place is in those who receive the bread. 
And we see that clearly in this story because we have men who are sitting in front of Jesus as he breaks the bread. And these men are blind and do not see. These men have limitations. These men are confused. These men are struggling in various ways. But in the breaking of the bread, something changes in them. And how does it change in them? It changes in them by the grace of and the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. From the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, he has been saying, and this is the, uh, his ministry purpose statement, if you will. This is his vision for mission in the world. He said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Spirit has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. To open the eyes of the blind, to preach the year of the Lord's favor. And Jesus has been fulfilling that mission throughout the gospel of Luke. And now in Luke 24, we see Jesus fulfilling these things once again. The recovery of sight to the blind traveler sitting in front of him. How does he open their eyes? How does he pull back the veil? How does the light get in? It gets in when the bread is broken, when his body is broken, and they see the brokenness of Christ for the life of the world. That's when the light gets in. This is what Jesus did for these travelers on the road and at the table. And they were changed in the breaking of the bread, and that moved them to ask deeper questions about their life and their relationship to Jesus and to each other. They asked the question, were not our hearts burning on the road when he was interpreting to us the scriptures, when he was opening up the Bible to us? Were not our hearts burning within us? What didn't make sense to them just an hour before as they walked down the road suddenly makes total sense to them. Why? Because Jesus was doing for them what parents are supposed to do for their children, in Deuteronomy 6, God said, These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk on the road, and when you lie down, and when you rise. The traveler's eyes were opened in the same way that the scriptures were opened, and that is by the power of Jesus Christ. The layers are pulled away. The veil was drawn back. The curtain is pulled aside. And this is Christ's work in them and for them. These travelers are like your children. They're like my children. They're like us. As long as we've all been in the faith, no matter if it's short or long, we can all say that wood has been stuffed into our ovens. Fuel has been put into our lives, and we're simply waiting for the fire to fall. We can't ignite this lumber. We can't cause the flame to burn. But here in this story, we see that these travelers, like altars that are stacked with wood, wait for the fire to fall. And on this night, as they make their way from Jerusalem to Emmaus, the fire falls, and it falls in the form of Jesus opening the scriptures to them. The fire falls from heaven, and their hearts are set aflame by the Spirit. Faith, hope, and love are blazing in their hearts. 
Because it's in that moment that God saw fit to unveil the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ to these travelers. And now these travelers can relate to what the psalmist said when the psalmist said, My heart became hot within me, and I mused, and the fire burned. They can relate to what the prophet Jeremiah said when he declared that there is a fire in my bones, a fire that is shut up within me, and it's just raging to get out. The story shows us what it's like when the Spirit ignites the word of Christ in your life. I wonder what it is that makes your heart truly burn within you. I'm not asking what kind of foods do you eat that give you heartburn. I'm talking about a different kind of burn. What makes your heart truly burn within you? Were we to go around the room, undoubtedly some of you would say, well, moving music makes my heart burn. And others would say, no, that's not it. For me, it's emotional experience. Give me the right emotional experience and my heart will be on fire. And others will say, no, emotion doesn't do it for me. It's, it's knowledge. Give me intellectual insight. Give me information and that will cause my heart to burn. And without taking sides on any of those, I simply want you to see that this story shows us the truth about the faith. And the truth about the faith is that it is not merely intellectual. It's not merely physical. It's not merely emotional. In other words, it's not a matter of what you know in your head. It's not a matter of what you feel in your heart. It's not a matter of what you take in your hands or taste with your mouth. It is a matter of who you know, who you take, who you feel, who you love with your heart mind, soul, and strength. It's a mystical, spiritual, relational faith. And it is only through Christ that this veil is taken away and removed when we turn and trust the Lord. You know what it's like when you want someone to come to faith. You do everything you can to help them, right? But the one thing you could never do is pull the blinders from their eyes, lift the veil from their heart. That is the work of Christ. And the work of Christ alone. Why? Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Well, earlier I mentioned that this story follows a liturgical rhythm or pattern, and you might be wondering how and where and at what part of the service are we in? We've already moved from confession down to communion, but I want us to see that we move one step beyond that, don't we? Let's look at our commission. In response to the Eucharistic gift of grace, these travelers actually confess part of what we call the memorial acclamation, the gospel of Easter, when they say, truly the Lord is risen. He is risen indeed. This is their confession of faith, but they don't keep it to themselves. You notice that not only do they acknowledge the truth of the gospel, but then they rise up and they go back out on the road and they go looking for others who need to hear this gospel truth. 
And tucked away in the Greek language here in the word arose or got up is the same word that is used for resurrection. They raised themselves. They resurrected themselves out of their seats at the table and they went back out on the road. They took the light into the darkness. They took the life of Christ into a dead world. They carried the fire that was burning in their hearts to the brokenhearted. They went to that upper room and found fearful and doubtful disciples. And what did they do? They told them the good news. And what is the good news? Not simply that Jesus died for our sins, but also that Jesus rose again from the dead. And they told the good news of the resurrection of Jesus. I want to suggest to you that we are called to do the same. The ministry of Jesus started with fasting and prayer in the wilderness, and it ends with feasting and praise in the city of God, the city of peace. And Jesus is inviting us to join him on that journey, on the road, in this story. We find that Jesus draws near to us and he walks with us that together with him we may carry the fire all the way home, all the way. To the new heavens and the new earth. Our hope is in the resurrection of Jesus who conquered sin and death and left the grave as empty after the resurrection as it was before, for death cannot keep its hold on him. And if death cannot keep its hold on him, death cannot keep its hold on us. For in Christ, we have the life and light of the world. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, let us pray.